Welcome to the British Society of Gastroenterology Trainees podcast. My name is James Kennedy and I'm a gastroenterology trainee in the Thames Valley. Today we are joined by Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald, Professor in Cancer Prevention at the University of Cambridge. Professor Fitzgerald graduated in medicine from Girton College, Cambridge, and was awarded an MD for her work in Stanford University. She subsequently carried out postdoctoral work at St Bart's and the Royal London before returning to Cambridge to set up her own research group at the MRC Cancer Unit. Professor Fitzgerald has become internationally acclaimed for her work in developing the Cytosponge, a novel, minimally invasive technology for early detection of Barrett's esophagus. She is now building on her experience and co-leading an interdisciplinary programme in the early detection of cancer as part of the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre, which involves discovery science to clinical trials for new technologies. An example of this technology is the breath biopsy from the spin-out company Owlstone, which analyses volatile organic compounds in participants' breath to improve early detection of various cancers. Among her many achievements, she has been awarded the Westminster Medal for Science and Technology in 2004 for her early work on Cytosponge, the Sir Francis Avery Jones Medal from the BSG in 2007, and an NHS Innovation Prize in 2011. This year, she was awarded the Sir Arthur Hurst Prize from the BSG. She is also passionate about medical education and is currently Director of Medical Studies for Trinity College, Cambridge. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, and so, first of all, can you talk to us about your inspiration to go into medicine and and then into becoming a gastroenterologist? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that takes me way back, actually, because um, I was I was really very young, around four, I think, um, when I decided I wanted to be a doctor. So I, I remember we were on holiday in Devon and we were going on this clifftop walk and we came across this absolutely tiny little gem of a of a museum which was a little natural history um sort of shed really with some interesting exhibits in and I remember peering at this specimen of a of a premature calf that looked sort of perfect in a way in this jar and I was just thinking well, what was wrong with it why wasn't it born you know <laughs> uh, um and um don't know exactly how that links to, to medicine but it was something about the science and the kind of pathology I guess and then, and then apparently I started because on that holiday I really started um, bandaging everybody up and saying I wanted to be a doctor um, and um, I really remember all through school that that was just my real um, aim and, and interest um, and so why gastroenterology well um, I think often you're inspired by your mentors and people that you work with along the way and I think it you know it probably could have been a number of different disciplines but I, I ended up repeatedly being on the on the gastro firm both as a medical student as a houseman on my SHO rotation all in Cambridge and um, there were some really inspiring consultants that I worked with during those placements um, I also really enjoyed my oncology attachment um, and that's what got, I find it, found it sort of disturbing, the oncology attachment. I, I was really struck by the fact that a lot of the time it seemed quite hopeless. I think also when you're doing junior doctor jobs, you're often seeing the worst end of it. You're seeing the kind of difficult, complicated cases that end up as inpatients. 
but I was looking after ovarian cancer patients actually and just a whole series of young women who who died and I was just struck by the fact that you know if they'd been diagnosed at an earlier stage probably it would have been different so it was really gastroenterology and oncology that as I went into membership and so on and did those early jobs I was thinking those were really my my sort of choices the things that excited me most that I wanted to take further and do you think it was that those kind of more harrowing experiences um kind of early on the formative experiences that then pushed you into cancer prevention research kind of the feeling of wanting to to try and and change I I really um I'm not sure you know it's easy to, to look back isn't it with the benefit of hindsight but they certainly had profound effect on me um and um it was something I wanted to delve into into more um and then you know why I ended up doing gastroenterology was really um again a bit of sort of serendipity and what was practical so my my husband got a job at um Stanford in California and I um therefore had to decide what to do and I didn't have my um USMLE exams to practice in the US and I thought oh yes I, I think you know I've been advised at some point it'd be good to do research and it would be interesting to pursue that. That's kind of interesting because now in the training programs, often you have to kind of decide quite early on whether you are interested in an academic career. Um, The MBPhD program wasn't really a a thing when I was training and, um, you know, academic clinical fellowships and so on, that that the academic track that's there now wasn't so um, set in stone. So it was perhaps a bit more flexible. but, you know, early on in my training, I wasn't so sure about academic medicine. I was really very passionate about the clinical side and helping patients. And so for me, it was a bit of kind of this um, slightly forced opportunity, if you will, because I realized I couldn't, couldn't practice in the US. I wanted to make the most of the time that I thought I would, um, you know, explore the opportunities for research and then realized how much I enjoyed it. So I think I'm very grateful for that. And I also hope that, you know, in our training pathways, we can continue to make sure that there is some flexibility for people who might come to research a little bit a little bit later. But you know, when we set off for the US, I was kind of trying to, to find a suitable lab to do research and very much had this oncology or gastro kind of in my mind. And so when I um, met um, George Fridofilopoulos at Stanford, who was researching on Barrett's esophagus, and I thought, ah, oh, this is perfect because it's both oncology and gastroenterology. Um, so that, to me, seemed a really natural thing to pursue at that point. And, and then did you feel you were you were always destined to come back, back home to the UK? Um, so we had a wonderful time in California. Um, you know, it was early on in our married life. We didn't have children. We could really, you know, I was in a very vibrant research environment, um, didn't have on-call responsibilities. We could do lots of hiking at weekends and things. It was a fantastic time um and it was quite a difficult choice in many ways to come back but it was around the time um the Kalman reforms were happening and getting a training number and I was very clear that I wanted to pursue clinical medicine and research um I didn't want to leave the clinical behind and um from what I had seen of of um American medicine system I still could really really um you know, could see the benefits of our national health service. Um, and so putting those things together, the sort of training reforms with Calm and getting a number, 
the NHS as a, as a sort of environment that I saw myself practicing in the future, but it did then become natural to come back. And, and you've really managed to keep your hand in with the clinical side of medicine, even alongside your very busy research career, haven't you? You've, you've managed to, to yes. keep some clinical time preserved. I have. Um, you know, not as much these days, but still um, certainly seeing patients. And to me, that's critical to kind of keep grounded in what's important in the translation. So, I mean, for me, my passion for research has always been very much applied research um, that's clinically applicable. And, you know, it, it never it never stops to be the case that you meet patients, you understand their concerns, um, and you realise what the important um, questions are, the, the challenges still to be overcome, and it's so motivating um, to speak to patients. And uh, con- congratulations on um, your recent award of the, uh, the Sir Arthur Hurst Prize. Thank you, it was a great honour, yes. And I'm really excited to talk to you about the cytosponge. So this is obviously one of the most exciting, minimally invasive technologies around today in medicine. Can you tell us about the, how you how you developed the concept and the ups and downs of bringing a new technology such as this to fruition? Yes, thank you. I mean, I, I'm, I'm afraid I could probably bore you for hours on this topic because it's been quite a journey. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep it short. But, um, you know, this kind of idea came about really from a sort of an over the coffee conversation that I had with Michael Farthing, my then boss, when I was working at, at Barts in the London. And we were really just sort of discussing one day how, how problematic it was for doing kind of um, studies where we wanted multiple samples from patients over a period of time to sort of map their progression from Barrett's through to dysplasia and cancer so we could kind of understand what the drivers of progression were and why some people didn't progress. And uh, we were sort of saying it's really, you know, trying to, our reliance on endoscopy is is a stumbling block. It's not very nice for the patients either, but it just means you can't get these really um, repeated measures that you might want. And, And then we were thinking, you know, it'd be really great if we just had something much less invasive and, you know, GPs, you know, it could be done in the GP surgery and wouldn't involve the patient having to have regular endoscopy for monitoring. And I remember we were joking and Mike Farthing said, what you need is a kind of bottle brush for the esophagus. I thought, yeah, that's, that's kind of an intriguing idea. And it kind of stayed with me. Um, and then it was, a, I don't know, a year or so later, I was in Cambridge and um, I just kept thinking about this, thinking, you know, it would really be transformative if we could make this sort of bottle brush type concept and I made I made several bottle brushes um, um, which I think were kind of looked like an instrument of torture I still got them so it would be a sort of sword swallowing kind of exercise to actually sample with one of these it was quite sharp at the end so I didn't actually swallow it um, although got quite close Um, but made that in the in the there are engineering labs attached to the laboratory of molecular biology next door to the institute I working and I, I made these devices and then looked around to see what you know what other things have been done in the past particularly in um, areas of high incidence of squamous cell carcinoma um, Japan South Africa where in the past for detecting those conditions they'd used various sorts of mesh balloons um, sponge type things and then relied on cytology and so gradually I kind of evolved this idea and thought it has to be not on a rigid, you know, 
catheter. It'd be much better if it was something that could be sort of naturally swallowed. And also pondering the, the cytology aspect of it. And of course, we're all familiar with cervical smears. And I think the cytology is all well and good, but probably for this to be really um, successful, we need, a, we need a biomarker. We need something that um, isn't so subjective as a cytological analysis. Um, and so I kind of started to think about this dual pronged approach with developing a device, which was more sort of a swallowable, something on a string type of device, and also the lab test, which could go alongside it, which would be hopefully, you know, objective, robust, and that the both aspects should be quite practical um, to implement, you know, not something so complicated and fancy that just couldn't be transferable to a routine lab. Um, and that began the journey, really. So literally, it was a two-pronged approach all the way through sort of thinking about the, the device and tweaking that and, and trialing it, and then um, developing the lab test, going right from kind of discovery, looking at which proteins really marked the Barrett cells and not the stomach cells or the normal spermous esophagus. You may wonder why stomach cells, and that's because soon became clear that if you use a type of cytosponge type of device and you pull up the sponge, you will collect cells from the top of the stomach, which is also useful because then you know it's gone far enough, and Barrett cells and squamous cells, but what you really want to know about is the Barrett cells. So we needed some sort of test or lab test that would specially mark out the Barrett cells. Um, and that led us to test you know, various proteins which are expressed and then develop an antibody. And that's how we then ended up with the cytosponge device coupled with the antibody test or this protein called trephor factor three, which marks the Barrett cells. Um, and then led us on a, a journey of having to start doing trials, starting off with a small kind of pilot study and then a larger trial, best one, then best two, to look at accuracy, then best three, randomized sort of trial. Um, and all that takes an enormous amount of time, um, which you look back and you think, you know, it's 2001 when I developed that first um, bottle brush sampler. So um, it's sort of embarrassing that something so simple in some ways could have taken us so long. But I did do some other things along the way. But that's kind of how long it takes to go from concept to these sort of staged, carefully designed trials to really test each step of the way, all the aspects of, you know, is it safe? Is it acceptable? Is it accurate enough? In a randomized design, does it actually detect more Barrett's? Um, than the standard of care. Um, so that's been a sort of journey. And when I look back, could we have done it quicker? Well, probably we could have done because some of the things, you know, we were rather slow to, to learn, I think. So with the benefit of hindsight, I think if we'd have had more of a roadmap around early diagnosis trials, around how you make device devices, some of the regulatory hurdles, probably we could have done that quicker. So that's one of the things I'm keen develop for the future with colleagues is how we just make it easier for people to kind of navigate that whole path. And you must be immensely proud to have seen your RCT published in the in the Lancet um, last year. Do you think we're just a step away from from seeing this in every GP surgery or do you think we've still got a little a little while yet? So yes it was fantastic to see that result in the Lancet you know when the, the clinical trials office phoned me up to tell me that they'd unblinded it and they'd done the analysis it was um, really exciting 
because I hadn't expected us to see as much as a tenfold difference um, in terms of our detection rate with the cytosponge compared with usual care. Interestingly, with COVID um, and some of the issues that that's posed on endoscopy, being an aerosol generating procedure and the backlog, um, actually there's been a sort of accelerated implementation of, of cytosponge um, in the NHS um, in a slightly different way than we sort of intended it because those bottlenecks are mainly in secondary care for people who've already been referred by their GP um, and also for Barrett surveillance because we've developed some biomarkers for the cytosponge for surveillance as well. So it's been used more at the moment in that um, context um, as a kind of implementation pilot within the NHS, which is fantastic that they've you know, embraced it and um, that that work is going on. I'm still though very keen that we do remember that I think the biggest um, impact this sort of technology could have is on finding cases of Barrett's who have no idea that they've got it, who are not diagnosed, who are taking medication long-term from their GP for heartburn or over-the-counter medication, um, who never realistically will get referred for an endoscopy. Um, and that's what our trial, BEST-3, it was that sort of population we're looking at. So I'm very keen um, that as COVID passes, we also focus our efforts back on how we do more early detection in primary care. And one of the interesting discussions we've been having is with you know, the National Screening Committee and what kind of evidence they would require for a national screening programme. Um, does this look promising from that perspective? We have the randomized controlled trial best three data, but that didn't have mortality as an endpoint. And traditionally, for a screening program, you would need to show a reduction in mortality. So that's something we're thinking about at the moment. That's really exciting. And um, and like you said, you've not been not been sitting on your hands in terms of other, other things, other projects at the same time. Um, can you talk to us a bit more about your, your more recent work with um, blood and, and breath biomarkers for early cancer detection? Yes, I mean, I guess, you know, having learned so much from the cytosponge, I'm really keen um, to spread that knowledge and help other people who are developing early detection technologies. And I think, you know, early detection has been a bit of a Cinderella subject over the years, um, partly just because it's, it's hard to do. It takes a long time. You have to, in terms of the trials, you have to study large numbers of patients and to collect the outcomes, often you have to wait quite a long time. You know, quite different than if you're treating doing a, a, a trial in advanced cancer therapy, for example, where you might be able to have quite a small group of patients and your um, trial outcome will be quite quick um, to, to, you know, to ascertain. So, so doing these sort of trials can be very expensive and can take a lot of um, a large number of patients. So, so there are a lot of lessons there about how we do early detection research better. Um, and how we move that field forward. And um, I think this has now really become a priority for um, policymakers, for funders. Um, patients have been very vocal as well. And it's kind of a bit of a new era for early detection technology and research um, that's shifted. You know, the balance has been redressed a little bit, I think, from, from research on advanced cancer to a realisation that if we really want to make an impact on patient outcomes, then we also need to try and address this early detection question, even if it's difficult. And so I've, I've been really excited to see that this sort of whole area is taking off more. Um, 
And so um, in Cambridge, we have a CRUK funded program in the early detection of cancer that I helped to lead together with a colleague in physics. Um, it's a very cross-disciplinary um, program. Um, and so that's taken up quite a lot of my time. And um, it's really fun actually thinking about, you know, this kind of field and, and what some of the opportunities are and some of the things that we need to address to to help make it easier for people and, and lower the lower the barrier for people to enter into this field, um, often from other disciplines, physics, engineering, chemistry, for example. Um, and some of the you know technologies that I think are really exciting is is kind of blood biopsy, breath biopsy. So the kind of idea you could take something very you know much less invasive than the scientist funded, you just breathe into a breathalyzer or give a blood sample, and could that give you a pan cancer test that would just tell you if you've got cancer anywhere. Now, obviously there are some challenges there in terms of would the technology be sensitive enough? And also how specific is it? In other words, if you've got a positive breath test or a blood test, would you then have to go kind of hunting for the needle in the haystack to find where the cancer is? And I think this is really moving fast. So, you know, some of the latest data from the different technologies for blood biopsy are showing that the specificity is really superb. Um, sensitivity has got a way to go. You can clearly detect cancer, which is which is invasive, especially when it's more advanced. I guess one of the questions for the field is how early um, in the natural history of cancer can you detect um, a signal in breath or in blood so that it would really, you know, make a difference to the patient outcome. If you're detecting pre-cancer, something like Barrett's esophagus, um, would it actually shed? DNA into the into the blood, you know that may be that just may not be biologically feasible. Pre-cancer lesion with a um, an intact basement membrane, there may be no shedding. So I think that's still, a, a, you know, not not entirely clear. I suspect we're going to need a number of different technologies ultimately, um, you know. And if you've got a patient that you know is at risk of, say, colon cancer based on their profile or their family history, or highly at risk of um, Barrett's esophagus from chronic reflux, maybe they're male over a certain age, then maybe you then you want to go straight for a test that specifically samples that tissue um, versus a kind of more population approach to just ask, is there a cancer anywhere? So I think we need to still think this through and decide what's appropriate in what context and what's affordable, of course, um, and it's really going to make a difference on a population level. But I think um, it's a very exciting new time um, and I'm loving working with researchers in Cambridge across a range of difficulties to really look at this, um, you know, and what the opportunities are, including being investigated for a breath biopsy trial run, um, the technologies from the company Alstone, um, and, you know, colleagues in Cambridge working on blood, blood biopsy too. Um, my, my main work is still on the esophagus, though. That's my first love. <laughs> of course. And, and so would you say this is where you see the field of cancer prevention going in the next decade or two? Maybe whether it's a, a screening programme or a more targeted diagnostic? Yeah, I think it was certainly going to move yeah, into an area of being much more proactive. You know, typically we've been in cancer medicine very um, just reliant on patients who have got symptoms. Um, often you know, when the disease is advanced. So I think we need to be um, educating the public, educating our GPs, 
being more proactive, um, thinking through how we can actually realize that goal because there are a lot of a lot of aspects to this um you know um a lot of our screening tests aren't necessarily taken up by the people at greatest risk um who may not think they're important and they may not have the wherewithal the opportunity um what we don't want to do is do more and more sophisticated tests for for a smaller smaller group of people who are very kind of worried but at low risk so so we need to think about the social aspects, the ethical aspects, the affordability. Um, but I think increasingly it's going to be more about um, joining some of these um, health prevention types of programmes and screening together, um, going out to the community and the patient rather than waiting to them to come to seek attention and, and ending up in secondary care, you know, emergency room, acute diagnostic setting. And seeing if we can be more preventative in, in, you know, in our healthcare. It is all about healthcare, not just about disease care. So I think we need to get more back to doing more about health prevention and promotion. Yeah, I do think that's the future. And something I really like about about your work to date, as well as is the involve is patient involvement. Essentially, I guess it's it's critical when you're thinking about uptake and um, what what patients would would find acceptable in terms of a, a diagnostic test but absolutely yeah. you do a lot of a uh, lot of work around patient surveys patient and carer surveys and, and integrate that into your work is that right yes no that's been really really important as soon as you're in this area you have to work with the public with patients patients have been greatly helpful in sort of thinking about what we put in our patient information leaflets um you know what what makes the test um more pleasurable, acceptable. Um, some of that's around the messaging and the information you give them beforehand. Um, you know, simple things about whether you suck a lozenge afterwards or, you know, what, what helps uh, helps after the test. Um, and we've been very fortunate to work with people, social scientists, public, um, public health, primary care physicians who have really advised us in this area, um, who are experts at, at absolutely that. And I would say that it's really um, key to work with people who have expertise in these areas and the patients and um, for me one of the most um, gratifying things actually of this whole cytosponge research has been working with a range of different healthcare professionals with different and scientists with different expertise you know right from material science engineering um, social science public health primary care a huge team effort but all of these perspectives are very valuable in developing a new test Excellent. And um, a bit more about yourself now. What would you say your proudest achievement is to date? Well, I think one of the most amazing moments for me has been meeting patients who've had an early diagnosis, um, early cancer diagnosis through a cytosponge trial um, and have gone on to have successful treatment. That makes it all, all worthwhile. Um, and, you know, what we've managed to achieve with the cytosponge has felt very worthwhile. Um, and there have been moments along the way when I felt that it's just too difficult and I might give up. Um, and other moments when I've just felt so um, sure that it is worth it and it's important to continue. And, and I've, you know, um, been uh, helped along the way by people who have encouraged and, and given their support and, and been part of that team effort. And we thought, yes, we must keep going because this is really good. Um, and, you know, and ultimately, 
I really hope the site of Spanish takes off and it, and it um, makes a real contribution. But um, I think whatever happens, it's helped us think about um, early detection for esophageal cancer that will also, I think, have relevance for other cancers too in a bit of a different, different way and realise that it doesn't all have to be through endoscopy. Um, you know, and treatment for um, cancer of the esoph early cancer of the esophagus, Barrett's dysplasia has absolutely been transformative during my career. And we can now, you know, treat patients sort of endoscopically that before had to have esophagectomy. So now that's in place, the early detection mm -hmm. is worth it. Um, and um, so, you know, whether it's cytosponge or something else, I think non-endoscopic diagnostic tools will probably be here to stay. Um, and that makes me feel um, very happy that I played some part in that. Absolutely. And and how about one of your other roles is as uh, Director of Medical Studies um, for Trinity College. Um, how do you balance your uh, love of teaching and uh, mentoring undergraduate medical students with, with your work? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a, a, a kind of relatively small amount of my time. I um, teach four hours a week during the university term and I'm involved with admissions. Um, but it's such fun and so so inspiring to see, you know, new medical students setting out um, who are so bright and and keen um, and, you know, often ask really simple but poignant questions um, in supervisions. Um, I teach physiology into the first year and so I'm like, oh, gosh, I've never thought about it like that before. What a good question. And it's just... Um, it's just great to um, to be challenged and you know to um, to see people coming through. So so I really enjoy that. Great. And and what are your loves outside of medicine? What do you do to to wind down or uh, to complement your your work? Well, I've got four children who are um, growing up now, but I've still got two at home, and um, you know, family is very important to me. And, um, you know, I couldn't have done what I've been doing and, and sort of, you know, long hours I've worked without my husband's support. Um, so, so that's important. But I suppose our love, my love, and, and something we actually will share as a, a family is love of music, um, classical music, particularly singing, conducting, playing piano. Um, and uh, over the years, I've had a lot of fun doing um, music in the community, um, in the parish church, all age, charity concerts and things. A lot of fun and that certainly has taken my mind off off work and still does. Okay, so I bet you're, bet you're very keen to be getting back to, to, to being able to practice music communally. Yes, it's been very frustrating yeah. during the lockdown, I must say. <laughs> and um, and then to, to leave off, if you had to pass on one piece of advice for an early career gastroenterology trainee or even someone you know, who's involved in academic medicine or someone who's considering applying for a training post in gastroenterology, what, what would it be? I guess my advice would be, um, you know, follow your dreams and persevere. Um, you know, don't if you think, oh, I'd, I'd love to do that, but maybe I'm not good enough. It'll be too difficult. Um, believe in yourself, have a go and um, stick at it and um, you'll get there. Certainly be my experience. 
Oh, thank you so much for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the British Society of Gastroenterology Trainees podcast. Please do listen to our other episodes available at www.bsg.org.uk forward slash trainee dash podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes and Pocket Casts. And don't forget to give us a rating and leave a review wherever you listen.